these honest conversations, 100% of the time, have always led to what's preventing that individual from any base of contentment and optimization is fear. And how people define fear is so interesting because everybody would be like, I, you know, I don't, I don't care about being judged. And I'm like, well, the first thing that you said without me even saying that is the fact that you, you don't care about being judged because you're almost insecure about being judged. And I'm telling you, it's important to fear being judged, right? Don't give the person across from you an opportunity to judge you. And how do you do that is get yourself in a position where you embrace and accept yourself. You really wouldn't care to be judged. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks, cut from a different cloth, y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park. Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate. I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith. I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring match. Welcome to the show, everyone. Episode number 223 with your host, Matt Labrie, right here on the Decoding Success Podcast. If you are new, you've never heard this show before, this is your first time checking us out, we want to welcome you, introduce you into our incredible community of listeners, the individuals that are always tuning back into the show. We welcome you back. Really excited to have each and every one of you rocking with us. And you've just heard from our incredible guest who's joining us and being introduced in just a few moments. But I want to lay out the foundation for this interview and for this episode. First and foremost, the individual that's joining us, just like many of us, probably all of us, has never had the perfect cards dealt each and every time cards have been dealt. That means we don't always get our way in life, but we make the most out of what it is that we have. And this individual has accomplished a plethora in the sport realm, in the business realm, in the mental health realm and beyond. We're joined by my friend Tariq Azim, who is determined to normalize conversations about mental health. And this mission is what is driving his success as a seven-time world championship attending coach in combat sports, a former Division I linebacker at Fresno State, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, a new author, and a philanthropist. Now, with that being said, Tarek is absolutely incredible with his craft and beyond. He has trained some of the top athletes in the world. We're talking about highly known football stars. We're talking about combat sport athletes. The list goes on. It's truly, truly incredible. But his method of training isn't just physical, pound your chest, push the weight, rah, rah, rah. No, 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 no. That's not it. In fact, it's actually really focused on the mental aspect of it. It's focused on the accountability aspect of how he can help you level up your life. And it is absolutely incredible that we're able to amplify his message here today. So what I'm going to urge you to do is help us amplify this because it is that freaking powerful. Help us amplify this by sharing it with the people in your life, in your circle, on your socials, in your group texts, so on and so forth. You have the ability to amplify this message and beyond that impact someone's life. So without further ado, we're bringing to you our friend Tarek Azim. T, my man, incredible journey, incredible body of work, what you continue to do in this world, man. I'm super excited to have you here to amplify your message and your work. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked to, um, stoked to get connected with you and the, uh, the listeners. 
Let's do it, man. Let's do it. Now, I want to go back to the beginning because uh, I want to connect all of the dots. I want to reintroduce you to people that already know you, introduce you to people that may not know your journey yet. I know your family came here from Afghanistan. What was that process like? Because I I know what life was like there for your family. I've read about it through ESPN articles, interviews, so on and so forth. And life here, there was a drastic difference. So I'm curious, what was life like for you in that uh, transitional period? So, you know, I came here very young. I was about two years old or so, almost two, uh, when I came here to the U.S. You know, my family left Afghanistan and went to Germany where I was born. And then we were in this whole refugee setup in Germany until we were cleared to come to the U.S. to reunite with our, our, our family. And, you know, coming to the U.S. Uh, for our family was obviously a, a very, very uh, brutal uh, acclimation given circumstances of life and lifestyle and family and family name in Afghanistan and then coming to the United States and having the complete opposite. And, you know, I know I saw it firsthand, right? So much of, the, of today, what I would consider the struggle. But back then, when you don't know any better, and you don't see anything any different, it's, it's life, right? So we never had an opportunity to play victim to anything growing up uh, as a family, like uh, especially my siblings and I, because we didn't know anything other than that, right? For my parents and, and our family, I could totally see why they were so stressed, so depressed, so affected, by what they had, what they seen, what they were eating, you know, what they were wearing, their social circles, the climate, the public respect to, you know, coming, coming to America, not knowing the language, not knowing anything about the system of life and falling into a really, you know, not prepared survival uh, mode. It all made sense, obviously, as I, as I got a lot older on why there was so much emotional imbalance within our households. As a Absolutely. Not just my home, but a lot of our community, a lot of immigrant communities, right? Like when you, when, when, when you come here without really knowing that you're coming here and plan for a long stay, it obviously is a bit brutal, reflecting it's brutal, but in the process, we didn't know any better. Now, as an immigrant, do you feel like you actually almost had an advantage in a sense? I, I have a, a client of mine. She's incredible. She's the former president of Telemundo. Her name's Nelly Galan, New York Times bestselling author. She came here from Cuba in very rough times. And she's just said recently, and that's why I'm asking you this, that immigrants almost have like this sense of just like entrepreneurship embedded within them, you know, because like you come here and like you need to make it happen. You know, do you, do you feel like that at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always, I've always said this since I was a young kid. Like, honestly, I've always said, though I was really embarrassed of our circumstances, you know, obviously being one that needed to be supported by the government, you know, being one that was paying for groceries with food stamps, being one that really could never develop a home given the Section 8 processes, like you'd just be moved out of a home every year, you know, given the landlord and, and, and new restrictions that'll come on to these particular neighborhoods that just don't accept Section 8 housing and stuff and so on. So, you know, growing up in that circumstance, in that situation, you've always been in this mentality of like, I need to eat. And even when, when things ended up going much better for me as I got older and established some security in, in a business and a community and so on, you know, a lot of my friends always tell me, like, hey, man, calm it down, take your foot off the gas a little bit. But like our friend Nelly, you said? Nelly, yeah, Nelly yeah, Galan. Like our friend Nelly, you can't take your foot off the gas because it's not a money thing. It's, it's a behavioral 
it's a behavioral part of your being that like, I just need to, I need to just keep winning. I need to mm-hmm. just keep going because there's no amount of money given like our families and what we came from where they had all the money in the world. But like things can kind of change if you don't have a capability or a behavior that you could, you could apply into a new circumstance or situation. So my motivation of consistently being a bit relentless and extremely entrepreneurial has been that I never, ever in my life will allow man to have their finger on the trigger of my faith, my destiny, because if, if that gets taken away, right, then what? But if I consistently work on developing these behavioral practices of capability around grit, consistency, you know, persistence, passion, love, purpose, I need to earn, you know, I need, if I want to, you know, if I want to earn, I need to hurt that mentality. You can't ever stop practicing. Right, right. Because I'm still not certain that for as much as I fantasize about America being home, and I consider myself probably one of the most proudest Americans I've ever met in my life, I also know this could easily not be home, mm. right, in my, in my head. So yeah, I do think we have an advantage because of the, the experiences. I think most would consider nowadays trauma, but from those experience of loss of everything, it, yeah, I do 100% think we have this advantage of actually having a taste of what you never want to taste again. Right, right. I appreciate that perspective. Thank you for that. I, I want to connect some more dots here. Now, many people know you for your work working with NFL athletes, MLB athletes, so on and so forth. The list goes on. I'm curious to learn where sports came about in your life. Was it just something that happened naturally? as it does for many kids where I know that you were playing soccer, you were running track, wrestling, football, so on and so forth. Was that natural or what was it for you? So when I was very, very young, you know, until now, I obviously battle on a day-to-day basis with a ton of insecurities and a ton of ton of confidence, right? Like, because the, the, the bar raises every single day, uh, the more you push, right? So the confidence and the insecurities actually get greater, but right. What I had done very young is I'd actually built a relationship with these insecurities. And I, and I, built, a, I built a relationship with what some would call a lack of confidence. And the only thing that was, I felt was making me feel, again, emphasis on the word feel, better about myself and, 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 and my sense of belonging to something was sport and physical activity. You know, I wasn't, uh, I, wasn't acad- I wasn't an academic, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't an artist, I wasn't a musician, you know, I wasn't in a, and I was very young when I started becoming extremely mindful that like, I need to belong to something, you know, and it was around that high school. I mean, I've always been extremely motivated with, with sport, but when I was in second grade and I started Taekwondo, that's when I actually got a taste of like, oh, wow, like you can actually be really good at something and people will applaud you and you'll get a star at testing that secures you'll be a black belt and your teacher will pull you up to front to lead something because you're doing good at something. And it's this team that now in this community now that is embracing you. And I, and I, I was like second grade or so, I got obsessed with that, that taste, that feeling of like, man, you can really contribute to something by doing something that, you know, you enjoy, but at the same time, really helps with, you know, so many different facets of peace, internal peace. So, you know, that, that kind of led to soccer and soccer led to getting to high school and becoming relevant. You know, I played varsity as a freshman in high school, but I had a leg on me, man. Like I can kick. And <laughs> I never really thought about playing football. So I just wanted to kick. And I was, I was kicking like, you know, my high school coaches will tell you to today. I mean, I was kicking out of the end zone as a freshman. And then obviously when I was on the football team, like, you know, the coaches could see like, man, this kid's like an athlete. He has good form. He runs, he's fast, he's strong. And uh, hey, would you ever try playing anything else? Is no, no, I just want to kick. And then my uncle, actually, my uncle, my uncle Muhammad, he was a big fan of, of, of football and got us all into football when we were very young, like big Niner fans our whole lives. And he used to love watching Brian Young pass rush. And he'd be like, you'd be a good pass rusher. And I'm like, man, I'm 160 pounds, like five <laughs> 
So long story short, I remember our high school football coach, Mike Ivankovic, my freshman year, asked me, he said, hey, you want to try something? And obviously he's thinking like DB or something. I was like, yeah, I want to be a pass rusher. So my freshman year, I was one of those guys that used to come in after the games were over, like fifth quarter. They used to create yeah. fifth Yeah. So it was like 35 plays for all the Tarek types. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember rushing off the end and my speed was just so ridiculous. And I smacked that quarterback so hard. And that's when I fell completely obsessed and in love with football. Mm. And because of what happened to me after I did that, when my whole team circled around me, jumped me, coaches smacking me in the head, had my first stick mark, like there was a sense of accomplishment that really fulfilled a feeling that nothing else in my life had ever given me. And I started to really push that subconsciously, like the whole, let's just keep doing things that are not normal for an Afghan refugee in this society of suburban America, right? And in California. And it was just those beautiful moments like that, man, that really just made me want to do more outside the box of what people from my community were doing. I joined leadership. You know, I became ASB president. Prior to that, I was a rally commissioner. You know, I joined this like dance class because it was just like the more, more I could do for attention, right? And I was just on this, this need for more attention. And I, I realized, you know, that this intention was actually solving for something, but at the same time, it was making me avoid dealing with something. Mm, I was just going to ask you that. I'm curious because, you know, you were mentioning when you were in, I believe, second grade, you know, it was giving you some sort of validation and or sense of community, which is great, right? Like we all need community. It's very primal for us to have. And especially, and I, I can't necessarily relate to it. I'm born and raised in America, but I'm sure as an immigrant, it's not the easiest thing to come about. And I know even from my life, I've seen it first where immigrants that I grew up with were pushed away. They looked different. They dressed different. They smelled different. They ate things that were different, so on and so forth. But you just mentioned attention. And I'm really curious because I almost feel like, I mean, you kind of validated the statement already, but seeking attention and validation outside of ourselves could actually be detrimental. Is that something you agree with? It can be if, if, if the intention of, of why you're seeking it isn't, isn't kind of brought to life. Right. But again, we're kids back then. Like, who knows what intention means? Right. Who knows what any of this means? So it's just kind of going through things, but being okay, reflecting on eventually. Right. And I, I saw that I was, you know, I was pretty consistently putting glass ceilings over my head very young because of several reasons. Right. Like, I didn't grow up in a society or a community where anyone was taking any opportunities from, from me because I was mm -hmm. an immigrant. Right, like probably the most diverse, appreciated community ever is this, is the Bay, is the East Bay, the Bay Area. Right, like I've never I've never experienced you know uh, racism or or discrimination as a kid ever. The, the most beautiful community ever, the, like the best coaches, the you know all my friends that were white, their parents and families treated me like you know their own son. I never had any of that. I was so blessed to be able to have this bit of embracement that really helped tremendously with my confidence of belonging, right? And what I was seeking more than anything with this approval and all of this was just acceptance. Like I just wanted to be accepted. Why? Because I actually made a conscious decision in my teens that we're not going home. Like this is home now because so much of our lives, our parents wouldn't really fully invest emotionally that this is home. And we're never, you know, everyone's in denial that Afghanistan's war is going to be over. We're all going to go back and, you know, live this lavish life and have the lands and the, in the, in the, in the, in the everything you, they once had. But the reality hit. And I just said like, look, this is home. Then I need to create, I need to be a pillar at home. I need to be an important part of home. And, you know, back in high school, my only platform and opportunity in life was high school. So I wanted to become a pillar at high school. Mm. Hence why I really wanted to push the football game, really wanted to push the soccer game, wanted to push the athletics game, the ASB game. 
And that was kind of my, my thing, right? And it helped me deal and solve with so much of you know, what I felt was preventing me from actually making moves sooner or even better was I was reflecting on like, why isn't the rest of my community pursuing belonging like this? Like, why are we only staying in these tight knit Afghan communities when like, we're going to a school where everybody loves you. Like you don't, you don't need to just, you know, and I was just kind of like that outcast kind of from the Afghan community, though they're all my brothers and cousins and friends and everybody I love to death. But it was, um, I was the only one taking the step of like, okay, cool, I'll do this, but they're all going to come some lows with it. Like being judged for, you know, potentially being like this, you know, white whitewashed guy he was doing the american things right but internally i was actually dealing with something which was i made this acknowledgement that what was preventing my community from kind of pursuing any of this was the fear of being judged mm. and the fear of fear of the unknown and so my obsession internally and i wasn't very sophisticated with my delivery of how i could articulate what i was doing until much later in my life but i i, I do recall you know it was high school when i kind of made this conscious realization that the only thing that's preventing me or anyone in my community from belonging and, and being accepted is this fear and this, this, this fear of the unknown. And obviously, there's judgment associated with unknown. There's you know, the uncertainty that's associated with unknown. But as time went on, I really started diving into fear, fear, fear. And everything I would do, my decisions were based on fear. And I would actually make decisions based on what I was the most scared of all the time from that point on, because I actually realized, man, like fear wasn't there to stop me. Fear was there to actually expose me mm. and make me relevant and make me belong and make me accepted. Why? Because I was doing things for myself where I was actually accepting myself. I was actually embracing myself, you know? And once I had that for myself, I, I, I to this day, don't give a, I don't give, I don't care what anyone thinks about my goals or my dreams. And I love it when a lot of my friends think like, oh man, that's that idea, man. Like you're, that's out there. It's like, cool. You've obviously never taken any risks in your life. Get on my face. Mm. Now you, you bring up the word fear and that's actually uh, a word that's used in the subtitle of your new book, Empower. Uh, subtitle is conquering the disease of fear. I'm curious to learn why do you view or maybe not view, but why do you use disease and fear in the same you know, in, in the same way. So I built all these like internal, like Google Miss case studies over the years, almost the last okay. 17 years. I've been building these case studies off this theme called game plans. Okay. I call them game plans because everybody who knows me thinks when I say game plans, they're going to get some athletic performance plan around their body or, you know, the composition or their nutrition. But the reality of these game plans are I just brand them as game plans because I know my brand is associated so much with athleticism that the assumption is like, okay, easy conversation. We're going to go work on our abs and our mile time and so on. But the reality of a game plan is that it's, it's, a, it's just a branded term for something called an honest conversation. Mm. And these honest conversations, 100% of the time, have always led to what's preventing that individual from any base of contentment and, and optimization is fear. And how people define fear is so interesting because everybody would be like, I, you know, I, don't, I don't care about being judged. And I'm like, well, the first thing that you said without me even saying that is the fact that you, you don't care about being judged because you're almost insecure about being judged. And I'm telling you, it's important to fear being judged, right? Don't give the person across from you an opportunity to judge you. And how do you do that is get yourself in a position where you embrace and accept yourself. You really wouldn't care to be judged. And I saw this consistency in this, this word fear and fear of the unknown and why I consider it a disease is because I do believe that if we allow this thing to take over, 
it's a it's a horrible disease that spreads into a, a series of different outcomes if you don't deal with it. Because you can avoid dealing with what you're conscious of by what? Becoming numb to it in the form of, you know, a ton of my, 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 my clients and teammates who suffer from addiction, whether it be alcohol or drugs or work or, you know, whatever it could be, right? Then you have these individuals that choose forms of depression, right? For example, like depression is something that's clinical, but there's a lot of self, you know, self self-described depressed people out there. They'll just use depression as a reason or an anxiety as a reason because everyone is doing everything they possibly can to avoid dealing with fear. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times what I've seen with folks is that, and why I'm so conscious of this, just, just for our viewers and friends to, to know, I'm, I'm conscious of this because I battle all of this myself, right? And, and, and I always want to dig in more. And all I do is I just share my perspective. I'm not saying what I'm, what I'm sharing in my book or what I'm sharing on this, uh, on this, on this meeting with you is the answer to anything. It's just my perspective of what's worked for me and what's worked for my stable, right? And my stable and my teammates you'll read about and you know, 5,000 others that I had the privilege of working with in the last 17 years. But it's that fear is something you choose to not deal with. It'll of course take over like a disease, but there's a 100% opportunity to also conquer this disease. And conquering it is simply by embracing it. That's the message in the book. It's just a path on how do you embrace what most people are terrified of. And the really interesting thing, my man, is that every single human being in this world, and I do this on every interview as well with the host, is that when you ask folks, you know, what do they fear? Like what's, and it's usually the unknown, right? Because judgment's an unknown, uncertainty's an unknown, all these things are unknowns. You just ask, what is the ultimate unknown? What's the worst thing that can happen? What do you think everybody says? A lot of people say death, I'm sure, so yeah. on and so forth. So yeah. That exact word right there has been the 100% hit rate every single time I ask this question. And the really interesting thing with this is that, that as I've mentioned several times, death isn't an unknown. Mm. Death is actually the only guarantee. Yeah. Right? Death is the thing that we avoid the most. My proposition is that's the only thing we should be preparing for. As you saw the feature with ESPN, the title is Prepare for Death. And why I, why I bring this mindset to the table, it isn't necessarily about you fall into a depressing state of like, oh, I shouldn't enjoy life anymore because I'm preparing for death. It's like, no, preparing for death is actually going to make you enjoy life because you're going to be more forgiving. You're going to be more loving. You're going to be more ambitious. You're going to take more risks because you're mindful of what it is you're taking to your grave by the time I'm done with you. And all you're taking to your grave, and I ask that question, like, what are you taking to your grave? Everybody says nothing. And I'm like, wrong. You actually take an accumulation of everything in the form of a feeling. So my proposition is do everything you possibly can in this world to contribute to how you want to feel on your last breath. Mm. That's how you embrace fear. That's how you conquer the disease of fear. Because if you're no longer scared and stopped and slowed down because of what your opponent stops and slow downs and scared of, where does that put you? Across the cage from them, across the ring from them, across the boardroom from them, across a pitch that you're making for a venture, right? right. You, you approach this with that type of conviction and awareness. There's absolutely nothing in the universe we can't conquer. There's a reason why our creator has put people in our lives, situations and circumstances in our lives with no real glass ceiling over our heads. Mm. You see? And I think that's how you conquer fear. I love this. Now, uh, you piqued my interest on a, a million and one things here. I, I want to go back to your personal advice because I know that this is what you experienced. When it comes down to embracing and accepting yourself, 
if someone's listening to this and, and listen, I mean, at the end of the day, right, we, we live in a world where Instagram exists and all these things exist where we can compare, you know, we might have a facade where we, you know, we're trying to fit in so on and so forth. What's your advice to someone listening to this to embrace and accept who they truly are at their core essence? Give yourself permission to write your own narrative of how you want to feel. Mm. And we just have to stop. We have to stop allowing the rest of the world to have their finger on the trigger of our faith and our destiny. And I think that that's, that's, it's so cool because it's a very easy thing to do. It's called a decision. And the funny thing is, you know, I always battle with this too. I always forget I, I have the right to make a decision. And the thing is, we practice decisions all day long, right? Like, like I chose to put on this shirt today. You chose to put on that hat today. I choose to eat. We make decisions all day long with all these things that soothe a feeling. But for some odd reason, when it comes to my confidence or my insecurities or big decisions or anything, I all of a sudden forget I have the power to make decisions and to give myself permission to choose how I want to do things, you see? And I think that that's, that's been something that's been manipulated tremendously with a lot of these social media platforms, which is that, you know, the psychologists behind this have obviously, you know, have obviously assessed cultural behaviors and have embedded this particular behavior in society where folks are seeking acceptance so bad that they're willing to be and do anything for a like, right? The entire thing is about being accepted. So it's this manipulation of this desire that folks have to be accepted is that what's been bred in a massive, massive generation. And people always point to kids. I mean, it's not kids, it's everybody. You know, my mom's 60 years old and I see that in, in her Facebook community. These 60-year-olds, 65-year-olds who are all like posting things and saying things that they know aren't them, but because of a, a like or a poke or whatever there is on, it, on Facebook, they'll do what they can in order to fit in and not be judged. So, you know, we blame the kids nowadays of being so, so soft and so this and so that, but it's an everybody thing right now. It's not just these kids, right? It's been normalized for these kids. But I think that it's time for a couple of us to be okay being not normal and make the decisions and give yourself permission to be able to act on the ability you have to make decisions for yourself. You don't need to, you know, you'll see that a lot of these kids and, and, and young and especially young entrepreneurs, they're pitching things they think people want to hear. Yeah. Right. So they're building their entire lives off of like, I have to build this around the judgment versus around the truth. And I tell you, there's such a massive appetite for truth that, hell yeah, you're, like, you're on the road to rejection when you're trying to raise capital for a venture. You're on the road to rejection when you want a position. Like, Be okay with that because all that's going to do, it's going to make your story so much stronger and your truth so much more bulletproof. But just stop with the entitlement of expectations that you deserve the answer you want because of something on your mind on the first try. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, If you did the first try, they know you've done something wrong because you just rob yourself of, of an experience, of an opportunity to develop. But a lot of that really comes from us taking the safe path to just fulfilling the need or the optic of the current and temporary situation. And the scary thing about that is that I believe from my experience, I've gone through this myself. You know, I've laughed at jokes that weren't funny. And those come back and bite you in the ass at a very important time where you're like, God, I've totally burned the capital of my words. I've burned the mm. capital of my presence because I laughed at a joke when it wasn't funny. And I designed something around what I thought they'd want to hear or see, you know, because I was scared to actually share what could really, you know, could go down if I were to be a bit more conservative and respected my process more. And when I started shifting that mentality, man, it just became a game changer. 
you know, that's almost, and I, I don't want to say that we're robotic when we do that, but I, I've definitely been in a very similar situation. You laugh at something because, you know, maybe everyone else is laughing. Like that's almost embedded within us. So how do we develop almost like that hyper consciousness where we're aware of those everyday actions that might just seem like it's just part of life. It's just flow, right? We just go with it. So I'm curious, like, how do you develop that hyper-consciousness? I think every single individual on this planet needs to build a little concept overview about their philosophy that includes their values, right? Making a list of values. There's not one, two, three, four, five. There could be 10. But I always say, man, every single individual who's ambitious in this universe should always have their philosophy and their values list pasted into the locker right? Whether it's their briefcase, their laptop, their iPhone screens printed and put up, like stare at that. And if things don't philosophically align with your values, right. don't, don't let them in. Right, right. It's funny, man. Like my circle, imagine like my network and, and, and my associations, right? Like you would think I have 5 million friends, right? And the older I'm getting and the more I've kind of gone through and seen, like I went from like 5 million like friends to five, because <laughs> you just realize, man, like at the end of the day, there are very few who are actually philosophically aligned with your truth. And not that anyone's bad. Like I love everybody to death and I'll be the first, you know, by their side with anyone who calls me and they would for me as well. But when it comes to where I'm investing my emotion and my logic and my truth, it's, it's going to be to these individuals that are just going to push that versus shut it down because they're not philosophically aligned. Mm. You know, and imagine like I just have like, five very, 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 very close teammates that know my naked truth and know 100% when I'm, okay, good. Like, let's push this now. You know, like I get it where he's coming from. I get what he's thinking. I, now here's what I would take into consideration with this. But that's not only necessarily just in business. It's, it's also happened personally with relationships. Sure. You know, absolutely. your loved one, right? Or your family. But, you know, I'm, as you, you know, see anything on me out in the media or anything, I'm so big on chosen family, right? Like I'm a lot closer to my chosen family than I am to my kind of family that was, I was born into, right? Like not right. my kids, but like some of my cousins and all that, but I'm the closest to my chosen family out of everybody, right? Which right. are my, my, my brothers, my best friends, my sisters, like, you know, it's, and, but what's, what's connected us and made our, our lifeline and our blood so thick together has been having an outline of what means what to me. What are my values consist of? What's my philosophy and perspective about? Does it align with their? Okay, great, good, let's rock. You know, and that's how it all, all the athletes as well that I've had the privilege of working with. You know, it's the who's who has walked through the door and I've had to, you know, close to a hundred times have to be like, hey man, like this just, yeah, I understand like you're famous and you're a superstar and so on. But like what I do is a lot different than what I think you're seeking here. You know, I'm, I'm not here to increase your 40 time. Like I'm not here to, I just communicate to you through sport. But what I do is I really want to understand how we can hold each other accountable to having stronger hearts and stronger heads, you know? And that's why a guy like Marshawn Lynch and Justin Tuck and Jake Shields and Dion Jordan and Jalen Richard and Marcus Peters, like very particular type of teammates I've had, Bruce Gratkowski, Tom Cable, my mentor, like very philosophically aligned core group of individuals that even if they didn't know each other because of our connection, know that, okay, cool, there's a vibe here that's aligned. And that's exactly how our client base was as well. Right. So that philosophical alignment, I think, was... I'm grateful I'm still young, right? I'm 39 years old now and I figure this stuff out pretty young, but I wish I knew this in high school. <laughs> I would have been a lot more responsible with internal feelings young. And youngins nowadays are so much smarter than we were when we were in high school. 
right? They're just, there's so much more information. So they're stimulated a lot more than we were, right? There was no Facebook. We didn't have cell phones when I was in high school, right? <laughs> Pagers. So, you know, it's that, man. It's, it's that message. Then again, like my big takeaway from the book that I'm hoping everybody takes is that, is that you have the freedom to craft a narrative and give yourself permission to feel exactly how you want to feel. I love that. You beat me to my next question. I was actually going to ask you if someone that picks up the book can only take away one thing from it, what would you want it to be? So you already beat me to it and I appreciate yeah. Yeah. That's freedom. Like that's it. Like it's not complex. It's not complicated at all, man. Like I think we really make beautiful things extremely complicated and it's not. Like life isn't designed to be difficult or hard, but there's words that come with a lot of weight that we use as weapons to stop us and to stop mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that's just, uh, that's just a disservice we do to human capacity and capability. Yeah. Agreed. T, what's a question you wish more people would ask you? I know that you've done podcasts before, obviously different sorts of media as well. What's something you wish more people would ask you? Honestly, I've been, since that ESPN feature, it's something I've always wanted, but I was, I was too insecure to ever expose it was for, you know, 15 years, all my interviews were always around the talent I was working with. Though I love my, my teammates to death, my teammates were actually, they were coming to me for something. And I was always really like butthurt and frustrated. I'm like, man, when, am I, like, when are people going to ask about me? And randomly, you know, Paul Kicks reaches out from ESPN and says, hey, man, there's something really big missing in all these stories. And we want to capture that. I'm like, what is it? And I was like, no, 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 because I don't want to do any more interviews about any of the guys I'm working with. I'm just, they're famous, they're amazing, they're awesome, but I just don't want to be a repeat story every time you see it. Right. And he said, no, man, it's, it's not about the athletes. Like, oh, I, like, I want to know why athletes come to you. So after that ESPN feature, I think Paul Kicks is the one that kind of set, did that for me already, where everybody who does ask me, ask me questions today are the questions I want to be asked about, which is about how do you carry this ideology and this mentality into all forms of life, not just the football field or the, or the cage or, or Tour de France with like Andrew, you know, Talansky or, or baseball, or any of this stuff. But you know, how do you leverage this mentality outside of just sport? And, and it's funny because sport was just the opportunity to expose this. This was developed outside of sport. This was developed through circumstances and situations and in pain and, and abuse and trauma. But I didn't know any of those words back then because that's just what it was. You feel me? It's when I got older and I reflected that it was like, oh my God, man, life was a punching bag, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm hurting. And Seth Davis, my, my co-author, and I say this a lot, like I didn't have the first thought of ever writing a book ever. Again, Paul Kicks and ESPN put me on the map. And that's when, you know, beautiful soul, you know, genius, uh, Amr Diol from Simon & Schuster reached out to ESPN and said, I need to connect with this guy. And Simon & Schuster is the one that told me, hey, there's a book here. Would you be interested in, in kind of diving deeper into this thing. And that's how the whole thing about a book came up. And, you know, David Black, my literary agent said, look, man, we need to set you up with someone to, to kind of, you know, write this with you. And I said, I don't know anything about writing a book, but I have, a, I have a lot to share. And we ended up connecting with one writer. And I was actually in New York at the Soho Grant sitting in the lobby. And we were having this conversation. And after like four or five weeks of going back and forth, he told me, he's like, oh, I don't see a book here. And I was like, this is happening to me again in my life where I'm being, I'm being doubted. Mm. And I was like, perfect. Like, and then I knew I had a book. Someone said that. And then I ended up connecting with Seth Davis. And Seth Davis was just literally God sent angel. And I say that and I mean that. Why? Because Seth could have easily done like 10 interviews with me and written this book in like three months. Seth made me write this book. He said, 
you're going to write this and I'm going to structure it. And I'm going to ask you the questions I know that you probably won't deal with. And I swear to God, man, I, I avoided grieving about my father's passing. I avoided grieving with other personal matters in my life. I avoided ever getting any sort of help or therapy or admitting to a lot of my internal battles with depression that I, you know, I'm finally okay sharing and learning disabilities that I always hid. And I would override that by being loud and being the fun guy and being this athlete. And Seth and the questions he asked me and why this book took us 19 months to write was because this book was probably the most emotional I've ever been in my life because it made me deal with myself. Mm. So I always tell Seth, you saved my life. And he really did. Like he saved the quality of my life because he, he allowed me to unveil a truth, but then I put this truth out to the world. And now I'm held accountable to this truth by the world, not just by my five friends or my teammates, you know? So that's how I got to write in this book and why this book is so important and special and dear to me is because it, it's not a production. It's an everyday human being, just like everybody else. Like I'm not a famous guy. I'm not, you know, known. I'm a human, just like all of us. And I'm just hoping that this book lowered the waterline to get everybody in the world to be like they have been. Because the feedback I'm getting has been, I feel like I'm reading about myself. Mm. And I'm like, hell yeah, finally something where people can read and feel understood. And I actually got a taste of that from the ESPN feature with the feedback I'd gotten from that, like why it was such a hit is so many people feel understood. And that's, that's how this book all came about, why I'm so stoked on this and the messaging around it is because it just lowers the waterline of just normalizing mental health and emotional yeah. health. And I really appreciate the vulnerability here. I'm just curious, what's your advice for someone that's listening to this that knows they need to work on themselves in some capacity? Maybe that is therapy, maybe it's hiring a coach, so on and so forth. What's your advice to them to actually stop avoiding it? They know they need to do it, but they actually don't move forward with it. Yeah, well, here's the deal. It's very easy. It's don't have any desires. Okay. Don't have any desires if you don't want to deal with yourself, right? Like these desires come with desires does exist because it's the basis of how you build the relationship with struggle. Mm. And that feeling you're desiring or how you want to feel about yourself or the things you want or the people you want to associate with, like it's a fight, right? Like if, if you don't want to deal with yourself, then don't have desires. But if you want to have those desires and act on those desires, then be okay with who you are and what you want to be and have zero issue. Zero issue getting what you need to get that. And if it's asking for help, if it's painting, if it's, you know, whatever it is that kind of gets your mind into a state of being honest with yourself and outlining what exactly is preventing you from peace and contentment, then you just go ahead and give that to a friend that you love and trust or a parent and say, hold me accountable to this. If you see me acting a certain way or making a decision based on something outside of this, make me aware of that. You want to know who your friends are? Make them accountable to hold you accountable to your truth. You know, that's step one. And then if there's anything more than that, like, look, man, mental health is real, right? And there's obviously a million different ways people define mental health. I've seen a lot of cases and people judge folks around how they define mental health. But we also have to be okay knowing that everybody has different capacities and different definitions of what they consider depression, right? There's clinical needs. There's, there's medical needs. There's medication that might be needed. It's not necessarily just a mental shift on, on how you think about things. That, that can obviously help tremendously or whatever it is. But, you know, like there's nothing wrong with having to fix something about yourself. Right. Agreed. hundred percent. Now you use the word accountable a lot. I've actually even seen you use that in your, in your work with your clients. You, you've asked the client in the past, what can I hold you accountable for this year? I think it was a really beautiful thing. A defensive end. I forget which one it was, but I do remember seeing that. I'm just curious, why is accountability such a big thing in your life? Because I think the accountability of, uh, and obviously actually outlining and defining 
and branding, like what that is, that becomes that trigger purpose of why you deal and embrace discomfort, mm-hmm. right? Like say you're sitting in a, in a plank position, for example, after a four mile run and you just start getting super shaky and you're all alone and right? And then all of a sudden, a whole group comes around you and sees you shaking. I've seen this a thousand times. People just stop because they don't want to be seen shaky in front of people, mm. right? But if they're shaky and before they can even decide to go down, you go whisper in their ear what that branded term is around what they want to be held accountable to, you'll see immediately this lockout, breathing, going into order, going into every single tool they possibly can to be able to hold composure, right? And not really surrender to the judgment because something much bigger has been presented to them that judgment doesn't matter. Mm. And that's why I'm so big on the accountability component is because it, it also puts a responsibility on the relationship and the friendship. Absolutely. I love that. I don't have many friends that I, um, you know, I go watch a game with or you know, meet up for drinks and, and, and talk about the markets. Like, I just don't have any interest in any of that, right? Like my whole life, it, it's funny because it's, it's what I do for a living. So my whole life in, in the world, in the eyes of the world is, is work. Right. Like I'm just never not working, but it's not necessarily that I'm, I'm working. Like I'm living what I'm, you know, what I'm destined to do and be. And that's, you know, a lot of my relationships I form are around accountability. Mm-hmm. I just want to be held accountable to a responsibility to my teammate and vice versa. And that's why these, these trigger words and these phrases to kind of like encompass the philosophy are what we always you know, hold each other to. Like Dion Jordan is who you were referencing earlier. You know, he has evolved every year. You know, his first year was about make my mom, make my mom smile again. Yes. There you go. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Very, very emotional for him because he felt a lot of the decisions he was making was really hurting her, not making her smile. And then as time grew, it went from like my mom to my grandma to finally myself when he started living for himself and then for his higher power. So every year, this evolution of responsibility to self was getting closer and closer and closer. And it's really interesting that this last year, his trigger was God, Mm. right? Like the ultimate form of humility and surrender. Like I am the best version of me. And now I just want to be held accountable to our creator. And you see that, like, it's not something, again, he, he knows he's got the freedom to be able to change the narrative about his feelings. Right. He doesn't have to just say, oh, because I chose, I have to be this rest of my life. It's like, no, I had to be that until this point. Now that I got there, I have freedom to be able and permission to be able to evolve that. That's powerful stuff. See, I know I need to let you go. Otherwise I would be able to talk to you the rest of the day. Uh, one last question for you. If you live to whatever year you want to live to, you write as many books, hop on as many podcasts, impact as many people, train as many people, whatever the case is, you hit all your numbers, you feel fulfilled, but you could only be remembered for one thing. What would that one thing be and why? As an individual that died content. Mm. What would make you die content? A smile on my face like my dad had on his, on his last breath. Knowing I fulfilled my responsibility to myself, you know? And I, and I think that, that that's, that's how I define what success means. I love that. It's just dying content knowing I, was, I, I took on full responsibility for myself. I love that. That's powerful. Definitely appreciate it. Now, T, I'm going to make sure that uh, where people can get in power uh, where people can connect with you, so on and so forth, is in the show notes of this episode. Do you have anything else going on that we should make people aware about? No, I mean, right now, the focus, the focus for myself is, is, is taking a very disciplined approach to getting this book in the hands of as many academic institutions, corporations who want to strengthen the culture and, and character of their institutions and, and communities, and really just speaking and talking, you know? I'm getting a lot of just amazing, amazing, amazing notes from people on a day-to-day basis that are showing a lot of vulnerability 
I don't have any answers for them, obviously, but I think it's just a huge step for them to be able to be okay. Like just talking to an absolute stranger about this and sharing it as a first step has been awesome. So other than the emphasis being the book and, you know, majority of my time is spent in, in, in my creative agency called the We Group. That's kind of where my two big focuses are. I love it, man. Thank you again for this opportunity. Excited to be able to amplify it. Matt, you're the best, man. I'm so stoked we connected, man. Thank you. And there you have it, everyone, from my brother Tarek Azim. Make sure that you are sharing this episode with the people in your life. You've heard me say it once. You've heard me say it twice. You'll most definitely hear me say it again. This message right here is beyond powerful. An individual that has found a way to overcome his own hurdles and continuously overcome the hurdles that come with new levels in life while also helping others, right? Not just physically, but also mentally, which is most definitely a place where we could all use some help with the turbulence that we're facing in today's day and age. Again, make sure you're sharing this incredible episode with my brother Tarek. You could find him, all of his socials, websites, where you can get the book in the show notes of this episode. And until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.